listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. It was my fault. Sorry. Okay. Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. Uh, it's a, thank you, it's a joy and it's an honor to be with you this Lord's Day morning. And uh, Micah has become a good friend of mine over the past few years and I've enjoyed getting to know a number of you as well. Uh, I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, my sermon's title is Hope's Reason. You may have noticed that it's a somewhat lengthy and it's a difficult passage. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to get after it. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and your spirit and your gathered people this morning. Today in our hearts, may Christ increase and may we decrease. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my daughter turned four a couple of weeks ago, uh, but when she was about a year and a half old, I got one of those phone calls you never want to get as a dad. I was out to lunch with a member of our church, and we just ordered. We were at Chewy's, and uh, my wife called. She sounded a little panicked, and she wanted me to get home. Right then, she said Lydia had been hurt. And so, you know, I said something intelligent like, are you sure I need to come home right now? <laughs> and she rightly insisted. And so, just to further impress you with my intelligence, I told my friend then that I'm sure I'll be back in like, 10 minutes, and he shook his head because he knew better. Um, So I go home, and you know, you try to warn your kids not to stick their hands into things like light sockets or the dog's mouth or a car door when it's shutting. And uh, Lydia was getting really good at walking at this point, but she still liked to hold our hand when she walked around the house, and so my wife had her hand, and they were coming out of the bedroom into the hallway, and uh, right as she was shutting the door behind, then my daughter stuck her little finger right in the, in the hinge of that door, and it closed on her. <laughs> and so now here I am, I'm home, and I'm staring at the top of my daughter's tiny little finger bone. She'd split her fingernail in half and raked all of that flesh all the way back. Yeah. <laughs> so reality sets in as dad, and I go, okay, get in the car, and we go down to the pediatrician's office, and then we go on to Cook's ER. And uh, the moment comes for stitches. And I'm asked to hold my tiny girl's little arm and hand still while they stick that needle in her hand about five or six times. And I'm losing it because she's screaming in pain and looking at me like, Daddy, why are you doing this to me? So I'm dying inside. And from her perspective, she was confused, consumed by her pain, maybe even felt like I was being cruel to her. But from my perspective, I was doing what must be done to ensure that she would heal and be whole because I love her. Despite how much it hurt me to see her in pain, despite her misunderstanding at the moment. By the way, she healed up fine. It looks, it looks great. Uh, you can't even tell it happened. Um, but today's passage is in some ways going to be all about that kind of perspective change. Uh, you see, suffering is always a terrible thing. And I want to acknowledge something important from the start here. Sometimes you and I suffer as a result of our own sin. 
But I know that many of you here have likely suffered simply because you live in a broken world where bad things happen and people do bad things to you. Some of the godliest men and women throughout history have experienced some of the most intense and prolonged suffering imaginable, sometimes even for doing the right things. But regardless of why, we are all painfully aware that things are not as they ought to be. And yet, thankfully, the promise of today's text is that even in the bitterest of circumstances and temptation, we are never actually without hope because God is God. And even more than that, in Christ, our difficulties are never meaningless or without great purpose. The context for our passage this morning picks up where Jeremiah's prophecy left off, and it's safe to assume also that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations as well. He's writing in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 587 BC. And that event began 70 years of exile in Babylon for God's old covenant people. If you're interested, you can read more about that in 2 Kings 24 and 25, but for our purposes this morning, uh, what you need to understand is that these events were the most catastrophic imaginable for the people of Israel, and at the same time, they were intensely brutal. For one, the military practice of Babylon would have been incredibly cruel. Beyond that, Jeremiah is lamenting the Judeans' own cruelty toward one another. I don't say this next part to upset you, but just to give you an idea about how bad things got. Uh, He describes parents cannibalizing their own children. So these are truly dark and evil days in the course of redemptive history. Additionally, to Israel and Judah losing their king, the land, their priests, their prophets, the temple, this was all in some ways to lose everything that made them who they were. These things identify them as God's covenant people. They especially would have been concerned that the Davidic king had been carted off to Babylon and that his sons had been murdered there. And so some would have wondered how then God could keep his covenant promises to David to establish his offspring forever and to build the throne of his kingdom for all generations. But to be clear, there was nothing impulsive or capricious on God's part about any of this. In fact, God had been incredibly patient with his people over hundreds of years now. If you remember, they had all collectively made a covenant with God uh, at Mount Sinai. And if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30, here Moses is going to record this covenant starting in verse 15. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you'll not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. And if you were to look just a page over at chapter 31, you'd see God telling Moses that the people will, in fact, break this covenant. And so the day of trouble had finally arrived for Israel. The Old Testament prophets often call this the day of the Lord. Flip back to Lamentations. With all that in mind, hopefully you get a sense for the kind of despair and suffering present as the author writes the poems that make up this book. And if we're all honest, you and I have all at times questioned God's goodness in times of suffering. 
And even though we question him, God is so good as to give us books like Lamentations in his Bible. Lamentations spends most of its energy giving God's people language to come to him with when we are frustrated or confused or in despair. The book is something of an ABCs of how to grieve well. Each stanza in the first five chapters begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there's a paradox to using that kind of ordered presentation to these poems, given the chaotic and confused feelings of grief that Jeremiah is expressing. And that irony is most visible in chapter 3 as he grieves the experience of God's just wrath while at the same time appealing to that same justice and goodness in God as his reason for hope. In other words, because God is just, he not only deals with sin, but he also keeps his promises of redemption. So the central theme running throughout the book is that God's people can and they should cry out to him with honesty and with hope and with reverence in times of sorrow because in his perfect justice, he's also unchangingly kind and faithful. And of course, looking back with New Testament lenses on, we know that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's my big idea, here's my sermon in a sentence. To have Christ and to trust him as faithful and kind gives true hope in affliction. I'll say it one more time. To have Christ and to trust Him as faithful and kind gives true hope and affliction. And we'll see this big idea play out in three movements. In 1 through 21, we'll take a look at our cry and affliction. In 22 through 24, we'll see our reason for hope. And in 25 through 33, we'll see our response and hope. One word before we dig into the text itself. Um, Perhaps you're here this morning in life hasn't been marked by much loss or suffering for you. If, if that's you, that's okay. A so-called boring testimony is not a bad testimony. But I'm going to encourage you not to check out on this one. Uh, all of us will endure hardship at some point in our lives. But if you're a Christian, and especially if you're a member of this church, you also have a responsibility to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. If you don't listen to this sermon for any other reason today, listen for the sake of God and for the sake of others. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. I pray that you see the heart of Christ for you in this passage this morning, that you get time to talk about these things with some of the Christians sitting around you. So let's look at verses 1 through 21, our cry and affliction. We're going to spend most of our time in the last two sections, so in this first section, I just want to scan over the connecting themes to give you a feel for Jeremiah's experience as he individually expresses the collective affliction of the people. In verses 1 through 3, Jeremiah says that he's afflicted under the rod of God's wrath. It appears to him that God is against him. A rod in the Bible often symbolizes discipline and guidance. It's an instrument of justice. And as you can see, Jeremiah isn't holding back from expressing who he thinks is behind all of this affliction. Perhaps you notice that between verses 1 and 20, Jeremiah mentions 20 different times that he, that is God, is doing it. So then, what's meant by wrath? Wrath can refer to either discipline or punishment. Punishment is getting the true justice you deserve for your sins. And all us sinners deserve this. 
As Paul explains, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means if you're in Christ, you never receive punishment from God in this sense. And God's perfect love removes your need to fear His punishment. And we know that there was, in fact, a believing few left in Israel and Judah at the time that this was written. So then what kind of wrath was this faithful remnant experiencing if it wasn't punishment? We often, um, the answer, excuse me, the answer to that is that they were receiving fatherly discipline from God. We often think of discipline and punishment as the, exactly the same thing, but the Bible distinguishes between the two concepts. Uh, loving discipline is for God's children. Just punishment is for His enemies. The writer of Hebrews defines divine discipline well. He reminds us that in chapter 12, the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you see, the motivation behind discipline and punishment, they're entirely different. God disciplines His people because He wants them to be what they're meant to be. Like the need for stitches in my daughter's finger, God wants His children to heal and to be whole. Sometimes that discipline comes to us as correction, Other times, it simply forms and shapes us. It's always meant for us to become holy. So let me ask you this question then. Do you value holiness? God sees holiness as a wonderful gift. He's promised to complete the good work He started in every Christian by conforming us to the image of Jesus. Do you think about that when you suffer? Do you trust that goodness and peace come with discipline and holiness? To the degree that you don't value these things, you'll find yourself at odds with God's purposes in your life, and you'll find your suffering to feel pointless, and you'll likely think of God as harsh or unjust. Finally, darkness here symbolizes despair and terror, but also ignorance, a difficulty seeing and understanding why God's doing what He's doing. I think these three concepts, the rod, wrath, and darkness, kind of sum up and make sense of everything expressed in verses 4 through 18. In those verses, Jeremiah is going to voice all his feelings about his current circumstances. And the feelings and the circumstances he and the people are overwhelmed by are, in fact, very real. Even though, as we'll see, Jeremiah's perspective of what's happened is sometimes short-sighted and even at times outright wrong. And yet, God's given us Jeremiah's words here as a gift to teach us something. God wants us to cry out to Him and to depend upon Him in times of trouble. And so, Jeremiah is honest with God about how he feels, though he's not irreverent when he does so. In this way, he follows the psalmist in Psalm 142 who says, I pour out my complaint before God. I tell my trouble before Him. So if we're meant to complain to God while also at the same time being reverent, there's another question for us to ask. And you're complaining to God, are you grieving or are you grumbling? Jeremiah is grieving. Jesus himself is described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. 
And that means that we should grieve, that in fact it's right to grieve. Not just neutral, but right. But Paul also tells us that we're to do all things without grumbling. Grumbling is that kind of selfish complaining that doesn't humbly ask God hard questions, it bitterly questions God. It's full of things like discontentment and prideful self-pity, and it's a poor substitute for genuine grief. Like all sin, it never actually helps. It only further hardens and embitters us. I always find it both shocking and incredibly tragic that you and I can darken the doors of hundreds of churches on any given Sunday and not once participate in any kind of corporate confession or lament. We've become so obsessed with personal victory, apart from holiness, apart from eternity, apart from the gospel and the deep things of God. And books fly off of shelves at Christian bookstores because we've told ourselves that you're supposed to have your best life now, and we're supposed to make every day a Friday, so eat the cookie, buy the shoes. The Bible's great and all, but what I really need to hear from is that lady who says she hears Jesus calling. And look, I'm not saying any of that to be harsh or unkind, but it's that kind of fleeting nonsense that will ultimately fail you on the day of affliction. It's band-aids on bullet wounds. It's candy when you needed medicine. It's like if I'd given my daughter some Tylenol and said, walk it off. It bears no resemblance to what we see here in the pages of our Bibles, and it bears no resemblance to the suffering servant Jesus who were to pick up our crosses daily and follow down that narrow and difficult path to life. So what does it look like then? Let's look at verses 4 through 21. If we had more time, I'd love to walk through 4 through 16 in more detail. In those verses, Jeremiah works through a range of difficult emotions that wouldn't be foreign to any of us. He cries out in weakness and desperation, anxiety, pain, shame, bitterness. And all that builds to a climax of hopelessness in verse 17, where he says, peace and happiness feel like distant memories. But verse 18 is especially important. Notice the quotation marks around his statement. Jeremiah is talking to himself. In fact, we could even say that he's preaching to himself. And it's really bad preaching. My endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. Stick a pen in that, we'll come back to it. Verses 19 through 20, uh, finally Jeremiah cries out in prayer. He asks God to remember him because he's constantly aware of his own pain. But then verse 21 marks a major shift in the poem. It introduces verses 22 through 24, which makes up the very heart of this entire book. Everything in Lamentation swirls around those three verses. A new perspective is about to be introduced. Jeremiah acknowledged that he, in fact, does have hope, despite how he feels, despite what he can see at the moment. So, how's he going to take hold of this hope? Well, he's going to call something to mind. The mind is the gatekeeper of the heart. What the mind entertains, the affections will consume. So, while he asks God to remember him in verse 19, he also chooses to remember God. So, let's take a look at 22 through 24. This is our reason for hope. I'm going to read it again really quickly. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. 
brothers and sisters, what hope do you have in this world so full of sorrow and difficulty? How do you carry on another day when things happen like after years of wanting and trying, your spouse ends the marriage anyway? When you prayed for so long and you still lose the baby? When the memory of the abuse comes back over and over and over again. And when you give in to that same old besetting sin yet again. Why? Why can Jeremiah say that despite his feelings and despite his circumstances, he in fact does have hope? He'll give us three reasons. First, the Lord is steadfast in love and mercy. There's a textual variant here. And either reading is fine, it can read like it does here in the ESV, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, but it can also read that because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because the Lord's love is steadfast and His mercies are infinite, we His people, no matter how bleak things appear, are never consumed either by God or those things. The Hebrew word for love here is hard to capture in the English but it's given in the feminine form. It's meant to communicate the kind of tender care that a mother has for her nursing child. And it stands in stark contrast to the Judean parents consuming their children. But God doesn't change because of appetites. His love is gentle. It feeds us, and it never runs dry. Second, the Lord is great in faithfulness. Another reason for Christian hope is simply this, that God is God. God is who He says He is, and He does what He says He'll do. And here Jeremiah is saying that because God is loving and merciful, He's also always faithful. His love and mercy towards His people never fails and never fades because He cannot fail and He cannot faint. God is not a man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. And knowing this also helps us understand what God means by hope. Most of the time, you and I speak about hoping as something that includes uncertainty. We hope we get the job. We hope we make the team. We hope our problems go away soon. But we don't know for sure. But here, given who God is, biblical hope is a hope that's based upon certainty. And in light of this, Jeremiah stops speaking for a moment, and he instead speaks directly and worshipfully to God. Great is your faithfulness. God may not always do what we want, but He'll always do what we need. Think about it. How many times over the course of your life have you thought that you needed something so badly? But looking back now, if you'd gotten what you wanted, it would have been an absolute disaster. Too many to count. But even what we mean for evil, God means for good. You don't actually need to be relieved of temptation and difficulty in your day-to-day. What you need is Christ in your day-to-day. You need His power and His saving work applied to you by His Spirit. You know why we forget God's goodness and faithfulness to us in our daily lives, don't you? It's not because He's so infrequently good to us that we forget Him. It's because He's so steadfastly loving We get used to His patience and His mercy, and we take for granted that He hasn't treated us as our sins deserve, and that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His saving purposes. 
We change our minds about Him all the time, but He never changes His mind about us. Thankfully, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. We in Jeremiah and the believing remnant in Israel have all at different times been unfaithful. And yet in Christ, you and I wake up every morning and His mercies are just as plentiful as they've always been. They're new every morning. So, third, the Lord is our portion. Now we see that Jeremiah, after praising God for his faithfulness, turns to speak, that is to preach to himself again. Notice again those quotation marks. Except this time, he's telling his soul that to have the Lord is what it means to have hope. Portion here has some to do with the idea of inheritance, but most importantly, it communicates the idea of sustenance and nourishment. Food imagery is all over this passage. It's the kind of thing that gives a person life and endurance. If you look back at Jeremiah's previous comment to himself in verse 18, my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord, this new statement in verse 24 is a direct contradiction to that first one. Jeremiah is arguing with himself. That bad preaching has turned into good preaching, truthful preaching. He's changed his perspective. He's moving from himself and this world to God and eternity. So when he contradicts his original thought that my endurance has perished with the Lord is my portion, he can go on because he has the steadfast love and care of his sovereign God. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have Christ, the bread of life and living water. In him, you'll never be hungry and you'll never thirst for what really matters. You and I will never have to live on the mercies of yesterday. So to kind of wrap up this last section There's good news and there's bad news, isn't there? The bad news is that life truly is very difficult. But the good news is that life is not God. God is God. Your hope is not in having a trouble-free life. Your hope is in Him. The bad news is temporary. The good news is forever. Let's look at that last section, verses 25 through 33. This is our response in hope. What does it look like to live a hopeful life. It's important that we not only express and understand our suffering, but that we also appropriately respond to it. And so because the Lord is loving and faithful, in 25 through 27, we'll see that it's good to wait with hopeful endurance. In 28 through 30, that it's good to learn humility as we wait. And in 31 through 33, that we can trust God as we wait. 25 through 27, Jeremiah is going to list three ways that we can wait with hopeful endurance. Notice the repetition of the word good. First, it's good for us to wait for God. It's good not just to wait, but as we wait, to seek Him in our waiting. We're we're not meant to passively wait around for God to zap us with motivation. And you aren't meant to seek out created things in place of Him impatiently in your own timing. And these are particularly difficult temptations to combat in the midst of suffering, aren't they? But notice that it's also good for us to wait quietly. Clearly, that doesn't mean that we're to wait without speaking to God about our grief. Jeremiah's done tons of that. Instead, it's a prayerful posture of heart that expects to meet God and is resolved to search out a peaceful spirit when everything around you feels disquieting. And so, 
Jeremiah also tells us that it's good for a person to bear the yoke in his youth, meaning that it's good for you to learn from the weight of difficulty sooner rather than later in life. In the midst of all of this waiting, this is something that we shouldn't wait to do. The sooner you learn from difficulty and discipline, the sooner you put aside foolish and prideful ways. The sooner you're a person who's content and at peace, wise and humble. And in doing so, you require less correction. Amen. You begin to see that whatever God has put on your plate in a given moment is actually the best thing that you can be doing. So don't wait to do the difficult work of growing in your spiritual life. Fight for it. Seek God often in His Word and in prayer and amongst His people. There you'll find the peaceful fruit of righteousness because there you'll find Him. Let's look at verses 28 through 30. There we see that it's good for us to learn humility as we wait. Hope is found in a humble and a submissive posture towards God. And there's absolutely no hope in bitterly shaking our fists at Him and accusing Him of injustice. Job understood this well. Twice Job responds to his suffering with worship. If you remember, Job loses everything he owns, all his children are killed, and he's struck with illness. The author tells us that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Can you imagine? This is nothing short of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work in Job's heart, and it must be in ours as well. Job knew above all that he needed his Redeemer. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the last day he will stand upon the earth. And we know that Job's Redeemer did in fact walk upon the earth. God himself stepped into creation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ walked upon the earth as the true and better sinless man who's seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. In his suffering life and his atoning death on the cross, he was truly left alone by his friends and forsaken by God in the place of every Christian. He was insulted and struck down by sinners like you and me. And unlike us, he deserved none of it. Isaiah says of Jesus that it was the will of the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief. And in doing so, he makes many to be accounted righteous. This is our only true and lasting hope. This is why we can trust God as we wait. God, in fact, kept his promises to David in Christ, despite how things appeared to Jeremiah and to Israel at the time. Jesus has redeemed all those who trust him from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And where the old covenant required the people's obedience to the law in order to receive their earthly blessing, Christ has perfectly obeyed the law so that we might receive every spiritual blessing in heaven. He's given us a new and a better covenant of grace, not of works. Our suffering and sin will therefore never have the last word because He's done everything to secure our salvation now and in what hasn't shown up yet. And so, we humbly endure, resting in these last three verses. Let's look at 1 through 33. With these gospel promises in mind, we see that 
Who God is means that we can trust Him with our lives while we wait. Though He justly could, God will not cast His people off forever. Why? Because God, again, is compassionate and steadfast in His love. He cares deeply for His suffering people, and He infuses great meaning and purpose into our affliction. You see, God is also in control of everything. He's not running from the reality, verse 32, that He causes the grief. He was behind the Babylonian strikes and insults in Jerusalem. He was behind the strikes and insults that we afflicted upon Christ. And while never being the author of sin, He's also the one behind even our bitterest of afflictions. And while this may be difficult to accept at times, it's actually really good news. If God's good, but He's not sovereign, then we have a God who might wish to do us good, but who's constrained in His power to save. All our suffering would be outside of His grand redeeming purposes in our life. But thankfully, as Isaiah tells us, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Paul tells the Corinthians that during his missionary journeys, he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, anxious, and constantly in danger from people and from the elements. Paul did not have an easy life. And as a man who knew what it meant to suffer for Christ, Paul wants to leave us with the same hope that Jeremiah does. In that same letter, he speaks to every Christian about the end of our suffering. Turn with me one more time to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 16. Here's what Paul says. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, that is our immaterial body, is wasting away. Our inner self, that's our immaterial soul, is being renewed day by day. Now remember who's speaking here. Remember everything that Paul's been through as he says this next part. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And here's that change in perspective again. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. How does Paul endure? He compares his suffering to the wonders to come. And when he does, his suffering proves light and momentary. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming, the final day of the Lord, where we'll leave this old creation behind. This Babylon, where we are strangers and foreigners, elect exiles, as Peter calls us. And in the twinkling of an eye, the old will pass away and the new will come. On that day, our faith will be turned to sight. And when Christ appears, John tells us we will be like him in all his resurrected, incorruptible body, both in soul and in body because we'll see him as he is. And we'll hear wonderful things, things our souls long for. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And our hearts will know without a shadow of a doubt 
that he did all things well. I didn't understand at the time, but everything happened exactly the way it had to, and I would do it all a million times over again for this moment. And then you'll live in that moment forever with him in a new heavens, in a new earth, and Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. So, in the meantime, we're going to cling to verse 33. Look there. We see in verse 33 that while God may cause us to grieve, He never does so from His heart. What does that mean? In Isaiah 28, God's wrath is described as strange and alien work to Him. God loves mercy, though He's also righteous and just. And even His wrath serves His heart of mercy. Even God's destruction of unbelievers at the end of time will signal the final redemption of His people. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ for your salvation, I have good news for you. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives this invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary, that is tired from carrying the weight of your sin and trying to be good enough. Come to me, all you who are burdened, that is, weighed down with the many sorrows of living in this fallen world. And I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. It's the only place in the Gospels that Jesus describes his own heart. Friend, offload your sin upon his shoulders. Trust him in your suffering. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. God's heart towards sinners and sufferers like you and me is one of love and compassion, gentleness and lowliness. That is accessibility and approachability. If you're a Christian here today, remember that his discipline is never his disfavor. He hates your sin because he loves you and would see you rid of it. And he's faithful to do everything to make sure that happens and then to raise you up on the last day. Until then, whenever you're tempted to sin or to give in to hopeless feelings, fight for holiness. Fight for joy like it's yours because it is. Because you have Christ and his spirit, the same spirit and power that raised Christ from the dead. He's better than any sin or any transient comfort this world has to offer you. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're all tempted by the same stuff. But God is what? Faithful. With every temptation, he'll provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. So whoever you are and whatever you're going through, come to Christ. Now and every day, receive and be empowered by your only true hope and affliction. Trust him to be faithful and kind because he is. I'll close with this very short story. I know I preach longer than Micah does. Some of you may have read the evangelist Corrie Ten Boom's account of her time in uh, the Nazi death camps during World War II. 
she was the only survivor in her family of Christians who helped Jews escape Nazis in Holland. Uh, but in telling her story, she recalls a moment in her childhood that would have been an encouragement to her later in life. She was riding uh, a train with her father home from a business trip, and she asked him about the meaning of a bad word she'd heard at school. Uh, and so here's what happened. He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his travel case, from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. It would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. But for now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. We may not always understand, but we can trust our father's heart and be at peace. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for your word and your spirit and your people again this morning. Be with us as we go out into this difficult world. Let this Lord's Day morning and the rest of Christ propel us out to live faithfully. And when we don't, to rest in the finished work of Christ. Thank you for Redeemer Church, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.